Welcome to the Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every week with a new story about your world. Today's guest is Leti Gomez, a longtime activist and historian in the LGBTQ community. We'll talk about Leti's life work in documenting the movement, the stories that moved her, and the historic book she helped put together, Queer Brown Voices. Thank you for following The Jesse Garcia Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For more information about the podcast, visit jessegarciashow.com. Fighting Historical Erasure It's been a struggle and a labor of love for Leticia Gomez, better known as Leti, who has been documenting the gay rights movement and keeping stories of LGBTQ Latinx folks alive so future generations will know that the struggle was paid for by their brown community too. After spending her formative years in Texas, Leti traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1987 to take part in the second Lesbian and Gay National March on Washington, and she decided to stay. For four decades, she has been creating and supporting organizations in our nation's capital and took political roles in the queer Latinx community. Leti threw herself into healthcare advocacy for lesbians and continued her involvement in the HIV-AIDS community. She co-founded the National Latino Latina Lesbian and Gay Organization, also known as Diego, and Washington's own Enlace, a support organization of gay Latinos and Latinas. Over the years, Letty's role in the city only got bigger after she was selected to serve on boards for social services organizations and municipal task forces dealing with race relations. But she still found time in her busy role to volunteer in historic documentation of the LGBTQ movement through organizations such as Rainbow History Project and the Latino GLBT History Project. Those passion projects helped prepare Leti for the beloved book she co-edited, Queer Brown Voices, which was published in 2015 and available on Amazon. This book featured trailblazers in the movement. Some of these legends were being left out of queer history books. Thanks to Letty, their stories will continue for generations to enjoy. I want to welcome to the podcast uh, my very good friend, Letty Gomez, who I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. Letty, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jesse. I appreciate Letty so much because it's almost like we took a similar path. Uh, we grew up in South Texas. Mm -hmm. We became public servants. Mm -hmm. And in our in our in our in our downtime, our weekends and weeknights, we dedicated ourselves to the cause. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, man, if I was just born like ten years early, <laughs> I would have been marching with you. That's we both, true. you know, Texas, and we ended up in D.C. How are you? Let I'm great. I'm I'm good. I'm you know, it's uh, it, it it's been odd for the last you know, year of civil service as well, and so you know, for almost four months now, we've been. Um, you know, staying at home, working. I mean, we're fortunate that we have jobs that we can do from home. So I feel, uh, you know, blessed about that. And, um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's tough watching what's going on. You know, the, the changes that are occurring so rapidly, you know, with the, the murder of George Floyd and all these other. A lot of things are like compounding our fears about what's going on in this world. Cause we, not only do we have a pandemic, we have just our society reflecting on itself saying, 
are we even better, you know, than we were 20, 40 years ago? We're still dealing with police brutality, uh, racism, yep. not just on black people, but brown people. And then, you know, people are still raiding LGBT bars and abusing LGBT people just trying to uh, express themselves. Um, it's almost like the same things that got you out on the street back in your day are still happening. Tell us about your, tell us about yourself and how you all how you got your start. What was your hometown? And I'm from San Antonio, Texas, yeah. and uh, born and raised there. Uh, and I, uh, you know, when I was growing up in San Antonio, this was I was born in the '50s, and um, up until my early childhood, you know, there were uh, there were places we couldn't go. Mexicans could not go. Wow. You know, there were certain public parks Mexicans and blacks could not go to. So uh, that's the that's the world that I was born into and grew up in. And um, and I think that watching my uh, mother specifically, who um, had a, just a great school education, but dedicated her free time to, you know, civic efforts like LULAC and uh, volunteering at the TB hospital and doing other things like that, that I just, you know, I, I realized that it was important to give back to the to my community and to fight injustice, because that's what LULAC was all about, right? Uh, yeah. you know, really challenging the injustices that uh, in, in Texas that Mexicans were facing. Um, so I think that, uh, that's really, the that's work of where, where I grew up. For our listeners, LULAC is the League of United Latin American Citizens. Uh, LULAC has been around since 1929. It was born in Texas, but it's got chapters and councils all throughout the United States. And it uh, works uh, with, uh, basically it's a ground up organization. Mm -hmm. The LULAC councils on the ground in the communities drive the, the power of this organization. Mm -hmm. And so your, your parents were members my mother was my my parents separated early in my uh, childhood, and so my mother was uh, pretty much a single parent. I had three uh, younger brothers and an older brother, and um, so we were hand, we were a handful. And yes. uh, uh, but you know it was it was uh, it was a simple life, but it was a good life. And um, uh, I I was the first to graduate from high school in my family. I was the first to graduate from college in my family. I was the, actually, one of my younger brothers beat me to the, the master's degree, but I was, you know, yeah, I also got a master's degree. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, my father, uh, you know, he, he was a small business owner, and uh, even though my parents separated, he still continued to support us as best he could. I mean, uh, but it was, uh, it was, I also watched him just work real hard, you know, he, he, he worked really hard to try to do his best and you know contribute to to our upbringing so it was uh yeah it was it was kind of a mixed bag of growing up but it was uh it was a good it was a good childhood overall and um you know and then going into high school i mean i went to a high school that at the time in the late 60s was slowly becoming more predominantly mexican-american it had originally been a white school and you know there was in san antonio as um, Mexicanos started moving into those neighborhoods, the school changed. So uh, 
those were those were kind of the first encounters that I've had with prejudice and um, racism. And then uh, I went to San Antonio College after high school. I didn't want to go to college. It was I was just ready to graduate high school, get a job, leave, and uh, quickly realized that that was not a winning formula. So, uh, so I went to college, then I went to UT Austin, uh, and then I went to Houston, and I came out that last semester that I was at UT. And, How was uh, that experience? Uh, it was great. I mean, my um, my first girlfriend lover was uh, someone that I worked with at the Dean of Students office, and you know, she I credit her with helping me come out because I was afraid of coming out. I wasn't. I didn't know anybody gay, <laughs> so I didn't yeah. know how to. I wasn't exactly sure how to do it. Uh, so she was, uh, uh, you know, just lovely and helped me through that transition. And this was in Austin, correct? This was in uh, Austin, yes. Mm -hmm. And how was the gay scene back in the day? Oh gosh, um, well, it was a lot of fun. I mean, in San Antonio, when we, I mean, there were there were lots of bars. There's you know, cause that, where else could we go? Um, and so there was a, a big bar in San Antonio called the San Antonio Country, and um, enormous bar. And in Austin, there were several bars. Um, and and back then there wasn't a lot of there was there was there was more mixing of men and women and mm -hmm. so you know we would go to the same bars with our male friends and that was we just had a lot of fun it was it was great did the, were they raided uh you know um not i did not have that experience i have you know i had um in houston i had friends who uh were there was a very famous bar in houston called mary's and uh, mary's was always getting raided uh, and um that was happening up until you know the late 70s early 80s uh, that there were there were it seems like houston had the bad has a history of bad experiences right I, I hear, it was like they would catch a woman wearing pants i mean it was just oh, you like had a, to have you had to have certain number of female clothing on you otherwise wow talk about that right well you know if if you if you were a woman you were wearing you know, male jeans and, you know, no bra and, you know, or something, you know, and the police picked you up. It's like, okay, you have to have so many articles of women's clothing on. Oh my God. Um, yeah, that's just, that's so um, crazy. And, and the other thing that uh, was, it was prevalent in the, in the gay community was there was the, the prejudice and racism in the gay community. Oh so, yeah. So like there were, there was a bar called the Oak Plantation and a very popular bar, but some nights, depending who was at the door, you'd have to show two pieces of ID to get in. And if you were a woman, a lesbian, you know, they might up it, or you'd have to be accompanied by a guy. I mean, it was, it was, um, wow. yeah. And I, and I ran into the same thing in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, there was a bar that we tried to get into and they wanted two or three pieces of ID. So yeah, and that was in the gay community. Letty. You have documented the LGBT community and served on historical associations. What made you want to preserve history and was history your favorite subject in school? History has always been a favorite subject of mine. I, I love uh, biographies and memoirs and I like historical fiction. But for me, the what was important about preserving and documenting our Latino LGBT history was the fact that, well, first of all, there's not that much written about it. Yep. And um, 
and there have been accounts of of our history that have been incorrect and so that was really the impetus uh, and the motivation for uh, collaborating on Queer Brown Voices with uh, Salvador Vidal-Lopez and Uriel Quesada uh, five years ago. That was, you know, there was, there was uh, a, a book that came out about the gay marches, the gay lesbian yeah. marches, that had some encouraging information about yeah, uh, yeah. an organization that I helped co-found. And so that's what I wanted to Set the record straight, if you will. Set the record straight. You had the opportunity to serve on two queer organizations, Rainbow History Project and the Latino History Project based in DC. Were you able to see firsthand how certain articles that came across, that you came across when you were preserving items, how they erased history, like uh, erasure of the Latinx and, and Black cont contributions to the LGBT movement? Well, I have to say that, uh, first of all, the, the Rainbow History Project has been, always been very good about, um, you know, taking, looking for information or, or, or artifacts that represent all of the gay community. I remember one uh, session where we went through the files for Black and White Men Together, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Black and White Men Together organization that was in DC. And um, so I think that, this group has been very good about that. Uh, as far as the Latino History Project, well, that's that's you know truly all about Latino history. Yeah. And um, although in DC it was focused on DC, and, and so the Latino history in DC really uh, formally started, I would say, probably in, when about the time that I got there, which was in the mid '80s. Yes. Uh, and um, and not to say that there weren't gay and lesbian Latinos in DC. Before that, there were, it's just that there wasn't anything formally organized. A lot of queer culture right now, uh, they're focused on telling the stories of persons of color within our community. And we're talking about pop culture. You know, you got Pose on TV, finally telling the stories of our black and brown brothers and sisters, siblings, um, dan bringing the dance ball culture alive in New York City. And then we're also having people finally recognize that our trans women of color are being murdered, you know, and it's finally becoming news. What stories do you want to share about you growing up as a Latina lesbian in Texas? Yeah, I think, uh, well, you know, as a, as a young lesbian, Latina, Mexicana, Chicana, um, I came out into a white, <laughs> yeah. white community and uh, quickly, quickly felt out of place. Yeah. Um, and, and in a certain times was made to feel not wanted. So yeah. it was uh, really, you know, life-saving for me when, uh, I, and I was in Houston at the time, because I came out, graduated from UT and went to Houston for a job. Um, when I uh, ran across the Gay Chicano Caucus, these young gay Chicanos who had formed this caucus and, um, it was all about being gay, Chicanos, and really celebrating our, our culture. And, uh, and I say that was life-saving because I, I made some lifelong friends from that time that was in the early 80s. And, um, and, it, and I realized that it was really important that we, I could not compartmentalize who I was. You know, when I walk in a room, it's all of me, it's not, you can't hide parts. Or I'm Chicana, I'm a Chicana lesbian, you know. So 
that that was that was an important lesson for me, and I was just blessed that you know lucky that I ran that I was there at the time and I could experience that. In 2015, like you um, had previously mentioned, you put a book together about leaders in the queer Latino movement. And I bought a, a copy of it. It's available on Amazon, um, published through University of Texas, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, it's only like $18, $20. So it's a good, yeah. good bargain mm -hmm. to get all these beautiful stories out there. Was it easy trying to get, was it easy trying to get all these personalities into this book? Were they no. ready? Uh, it wasn't, uh, some of it was easy. I mean, we, uh, there were some, originally the book, we wanted 20 activists. We ended up with 14. Um, and there were some activists that um, were, as they started to tell the stories, especially um, about the experience with HIV, it was so, one person told me it was so painful that she just could not finish. Wow. She could not finish it. Um, another, uh, a trans man, um, told me that, um, the pain, the, the, the whole process of talking about the transition for him, for him, another, it was so painful that he just couldn't finish. And he, so he, he, you know, he just couldn't. And so, um, so that was a, that, that was, um, and I said to both of them, I, that I hope that at some point they finish their stories. Um, I think that uh, there was a lot about that period of time, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, where um, we were really battling, you know, being one, uh, not, you know, not, not ostracized, not beaten, uh, uh, being turned away from certain establishments. I mean, it's still going on today, but um, it was, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot more frequent and, uh, and certainly people, more people were getting kicked out of their families for being, you know, coming out as gay or lesbian or bi or trans. And so, um, I think the, uh, the stories that we did get though, uh, you know, we did ask, you know, from childhood to coming out to becoming an activist, what was that like for you? And, um, so I think we got some very beautiful, you know examples and stories a lot of pain but also a lot of accomplishments yes a lot of accomplishment and triumph triumph which story in the book sticks out with you the most uh well i actually i was the one that came to mind when i saw that question was um really uh, gloria ramirez's story uh she's from uh she's actually from austin and that one stuck out to me because uh, and it's really about her story, and she relates just the 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 prejudice and the racism that she encountered growing up in Austin, and um, it was um, it was not something that I experienced, and but uh, it was uh, I was just struck by um, what she lived through and triumphed over in her life, and. Um, and Gloria has, um, you know, became a school teacher and she's still working at the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center. She's the editor for La Voz and uh, just a, she's a really wonderful person. And just to imagine that she had to experience that as a child um, was, was really um, heartbreaking. And then I guess if I could just add another story, it's um, 
the story of um, of uh, Laura Esquivel and you know also her childhood and growing up in LA and uh, the, the differences that she saw between her two families and that, that was that was really compelling. I hope to get Laura on the on the show. Oh, you should definitely try to get Laura. Yeah. Yes, and Gloria as well. A lot of history was made in just six months in 2020, from a Supreme Court win guaranteeing employment to the first ever gay presidential candidate winning Iowa, to local governments allowing non-binary gender status on official state licenses. Did you ever think that we'd be in a place where so many advances were being made? Yeah, not all at once. I think that... Um... I mean, I would say probably, you know, thinking back to in the 90s, you know, I thought, you know, am I going to see marriage in my lifetime? I don't, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it's, but it's a testament to the fact that protests and our organizations and uh, really encouraging people to come out and be out uh, is, uh, has paid off. I mean, not, not without sacrifice, obviously, but it's paid off. And so and the other big win was DACA, you know, DACA. that affects a, a good percentage of our community as well. As well. Yeah. And I, are you hoping to maybe write another uh, book later on about all this, the new leaders that have come up? Well, uh, actually I am collaborating on a book uh, um, and it's, uh, I'm collaborating with uh, professor uh, Lourdes Torres. She's a, a professor at uh, DePaul University in Chicago. And she and I uh, are gonna write a, a book on the on Diego, the National Latino LGBT organization. So we're, we're just getting started. So I, I, the, first book took five, the first book took five years. I expect this one will take just as long. <laughs> Can you give us a little preview? Uh, explain what Diego was. So Diego was the National Latino, Lesbian and Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Organization. It was uh, really the brainchild of a group of activists uh, that met in, I believe, San Francisco or LA in 1986 and um, decided that at the 1987 March on Washington weekend, there would be a gathering of Latino LGBT activists in DC. So um, the thought was that while we had a National Gay and Lesbian Task Force and we had all these other national gay organizations, uh, Latinos weren't represented very well, if at all, in those, in those organizations at that time. This was, you know, 1987. And that we needed an organization that would focus on us, our communities as Latinos and as LGBT people. So uh, that was that was the impetus. So we met here in Washington D.C. in 1987. That October, I think it was October 10th. It was the day before the march, and um, we decided that we were going to create this organization to, do, you know, basically do community organizing, uh, work, at, you know, uh, to educate our communities on HIV/AIDS, uh, work with uh, international, you know, Latino organizations. Uh, and I wish I could remember the fourth thing, but um, the point was that we needed to mobilize our our communities, and so. And the, it was uh, great that you all had representation. From what by I regions, yeah, we had region regional representation: the West, the Southwest, the North, the Midwest, East, and um, 
that organization lasted from 1988 to 2004. Wow. And, um, there were a couple of attempts to create another national organization after that that um, weren't successful, and I think there's still there's still you know attempts to create maybe not a national brick and mortar organization, but at least a, a, a some sort of a network yes. uh, to to link activists because that's really what's important you know linking activists and efforts. I think what Guayego was important is because it kind of inspired local efforts to have those organizations on the ground locally. And you probably taught them how to apply for grants. Because back in the 80s, a lot of these uh, LGBT organizations were able to get a hold of federal funding because of the HIV AIDS crisis. which brought communities together and there was money behind it. Mm -hmm. So thanks to Diego, it kind of planted the seed everywhere for people to get organized. And I want to thank you personally for driving that effort. Oh, no, well, was, you know, it was a, it was so important to me and it was a, it was really with a lot of enthusiasm and passion that I devoted a lot of time to it because it was important. And I think it's something like that is still important. So the, the, but the idea behind the book is really to document the history of Yego, the impact that Yego had while it existed. And uh, and also tell the story. You know why did it come? To, why did it close? You know why did it come to an end? Because there's lessons to be learned from that as well. Yes, I gotta ask. Being a woman on those boards of gay men, was it hard? Was your voice? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because sexism doesn't stop just because you're a gay man. You tell know? us about <laughs> a little bit about that. So. So I mean, that's, I mean, we, we're products of our society. So you know. Uh, gay Latino men can be just as sexist, you know, and machista as their <laughs> heterosexual counterparts. It's just, it's just what it is. So, so yeah. So you know, as women, we had to you know really you know make sure that our voices were heard and respected. And um, but it was always about collaborating and working together because we both had this common goal, which was you know to you know adelantar la comunidad, you know further our, our community. Our I'm, just, I'm just so happy that uh, after years of mobilizing the community, thank you for that, we now have people running for office and winning, you know? People of color that are LGBT, they're gonna be taking office this fall. And it's just amazing that we're at this point where we get to celebrate and not only be out in our families and in our community, but we get to a point that the community elects us to serve in such an important role. And I'm just, when I was marching back in the 90s, I mean, in the 2000s, I, I, I just didn't think we we're gonna be making it so quick. You know, make it, get to our, to be in this place. So I just feel so grateful. <laughs> and that, but that's why it's so, so very important to be out and visible. Because if we're not out and we're not visible, then, whatever you know whatever our issues are are going to get ignored yeah and i think we've seen that play out on the streets in the last few weeks right with the black lives matter movement if it yeah. wasn't for not just the black lives matter activists but their allies out protesting day after day after day after day and saying things have to change that this is really kind of quickly mobilized and it's spreading from not only just 
getting police uh, station, uh, police in jurisdiction, uh, police reform, reform yeah. you know, in jurisdictions to change the way they police the community. But you have statues that were being defended that are coming down. You have the state of Mississippi finally changing their flag. It's just amazing how this is multiplying. Mm -hmm. We're having these discussions and people are finally saying, yeah, it is, it is racism and we have to deal with it. Yeah, and, and that's why it's so very important too that you know we continue to encourage our the younger generations that are coming behind us. I mean, that you know, um, education's important, uh, but being educated about what your civil civic responsibilities are, and I'm talking about voting, being yes. educated on what the issues are, because it does make a difference. I mean, I've I've had a, a person in the last year say, "Oh, my vote doesn't matter." It does matter, especially if in some places where it comes down to just a handful of votes for a city council person or a commissioner, you know, it does matter. So uh, I really want to encourage whoever's listening to just keep that in mind that um, we, we have this wonderful right to vote and to express our views through that vote. And we should exercise it because if we don't, we'll end up with people who don't have our best interests that hard. Lati, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and, sure. and sharing your story and your journey. It means a lot to me. And I'm so grateful that you were there marching for us and organizing. Now we have all these wonderful organizations that exist because of you. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's, 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 a, it's another way to be visible and convey information. So I really want to say I appreciate all your efforts, not just with the podcast, but with LULAC and the fundraising that you've been doing for scholarships. Uh, and I am going to send a donation, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, I follow in your footsteps. I want to just thank you for what you do, too, Jesse. Thank you, Lindsay. Un abrazo.